organizations are more and more establishing their services in the cloud and they're building those services and iterating on them very, very quickly, more quickly than ever before. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Curtis Barker at Resilient. He's VP of Product Strategy, and we are, we are happy to have him uh, as part of this interview. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you, Armand. Great to be with you today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? I live in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I, I'm originally from the UK. I spent a long time living and working in Southeast Asia, nearly 10 years, in Singapore and Malaysia. I'm a bit, a bit of a man of the world. I like to uh, experience the world, and I've had great living and working opportunities in all of these places across Europe, Southeast Asia, and now the US. I've been in the US for the past six years, and over that time on those journeys, I've been you know, taking on a lot of different uh, roles. I started out as an engineering. I'm an, I'm an engineer graduate and then went on to help build networks in for a telecommunications company, which is what I was doing in Southeast Asia. And then I moved on to the business side of things and started my time working as a solutions uh, architect and then product line of business leader uh, before moving into uh, product management roles. I spent the last eight to 10 years in, in product management. Can you tell us a little bit about Resilient, what the company does, what is the main problem that it's solving, so we know a little bit about the company as well? So I've been with, with Resilient for the past two and a half years. Uh, Resilient is a, a Series A company that's been around for about three and a half years. I helped with the GA, the general availability release of the initial product that's been out now for uh, about 18 months. And the problem that we saw at Resilient emerge was as organizations were shifting left and accelerating the speed at which they were updating their applications and services because they wanted speed to market and updates were happening more quickly than ever in a more kind of DevOps fashion versus an older model of developing applications where they only used to update uh, on a three-month cycle. So because of the, more, the, the, the frequency of updates, it was a real difficult challenge to, one, understand what your attack surface looked like, but two, then act on all of the vulnerabilities and issues that may result uh, as part of that attack surface. So what Resilient does is it analyzes code and keeps a dynamic inventory, uh, what we call a dynamic software bill of materials 
of the code as it moves from the CI tool chain where developers are working on it into production where customers will get benefit from it and then associates risk to it. And the key thing that you get from that is one, we figure out of the code that's developed, only a fraction of it is actually it really matters, is risky. So we figure out which fraction is risky and then highlight that to security and development team so that they can focus on the risk that matters most. And they can also reduce their backlog, understanding which code is unused and potentially uh, doesn't need to be part of their build. And the result of that is organizations are able to ship their code faster whilst not sacrificing security and focus their resources on the issues that are prevalent and relevant to their attack surface not just focusing on all the risk that may be surfaced by security scanning tools uh, that sometimes find hundreds of thousands of vulnerabilities. We reduced that by about 85%. So significant reduction in the amount of time and energy spent on things that don't matter. Interesting. So everything you know that starts, and cloud is not an exception, everything that starts, it normally starts with kind of getting the basics done first. And then, you know, you add more quality around it, right? So you you make it better and better and better. And I think cloud has seen that kind of path as well. And I would say most of these security-related technologies and techniques that have been built and the one that you just explained, it just is part of it. It just adds to the quality. Do you see that, for example, these services, I don't know, uh, I'm not expert in that particular domain, but I don't think, you know, that was something that was available at the very beginning of, you know, cloud 10 years ago, and or at least not as comprehensively and as intelligently, you know, engines that looking at the code and doing all of these analysis and providing all of these insights. That's your take as well? Is it true or, you know, and, and how do you see that, for example, you know, it's working and, and it's going to continue evolving as we go. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, so I've been working on cloud products for a long time, probably from the beginning of cloud security, at least. Not from the beginning of cloud, but cloud was nascent when I first started. It was, you know, accumul- accumulatively, it was less than a $10 billion industry. It's now maybe $150 billion. It's It's seen an exponential rise from when I got into it back in yeah, I guess it would have been around 2013, 2014. And you're right, at the time, there wasn't much in terms of security built into the platform. And, and that was recognized very early on by the cloud service providers, uh, to be fair. They recognized that not having security built into the platform was an inhibitor to get onto the platform. So they started early on trying to build out security services, because at that point, organizations, certainly larger enterprise organizations, had invested in their security tool set and it wasn't fit for the cloud. So there was a there was a challenge. It, that's where there was an in- inhibitor. But that created an, in- an inhibitor for the security tools as well. Because as organizations were trying to move to get benefit from the cloud, these tools weren't fit for the cloud. So there was this interesting push and pull The service providers like Amazon, Google, and Azure, it was mostly Amazon at that point, uh, leading the charge in terms of pulling organizations to to the cloud and then trying to 
remove the obstacles by providing security services so that um, organizations could move there without having to sacrifice their their security posture. And and then there was a push from the uh, customers to their vendors to say, hey, you need to move into the cloud also. You need to come with us on this journey so that we can continue to have a partnership. That really kicked off a huge, uh, I'd call it a revolution in security where a lot of security companies pretty much all security companies needed to re-architect their products and services so that they could deliver to customers in the cloud. What are the most applicable or most common standards today for a SaaS product, SaaS application product to go there and uh, you know get certified or go through that standard, whatever is well-defined, and then say, you know, this is really the standard on the security front or, you know, the compliance that I have. What are those that are so commonly accepted in the cloud world today? There are cloud-specific frameworks, but a lot of the regulations that companies really need to work toward are regulations that have been in place for some time. And that would have been there whether cloud uh, had, had been there or not. But like specifically related to the cloud, I think ISO uh, 2701 and SOC 2 compliance has really raised the bar in terms of your standard security posture that you get for all services delivering via the cloud. So all organizations have had to do that because their customers have demanded it, which is great, right? So things like identity and access management, uh, endpoint management, encryption, they're all useful things that all services should be providing. And frankly, you know, that they're the type of frameworks that have really pushed organizations to provide a better security posture, which I think is helpful broadly. But then there are industry-specific frameworks and uh, just broader frameworks that have been there for some time like a PCI DSS in the financial industry, a HIPAA for anything healthcare related, and obviously things FDA in the health industry as well has more things that are relevant to services delivered via the cloud than it probably used to before. So those frameworks have also evolved, right? Uh, And then you've got other kind of best practice frameworks like NIST, for example, that is something that a lot of CISOs out there take a look at to see how they can kind of build a security framework and iterate from that. You've also got things like FedRAMP, right, which is probably a little bit more cloud-specific as well, uh, which is focused a little bit more on the federal industry as well. But that has implications because anyone that's working with organizations that are, you know, federally evolved organizations or government organizations they will they are likely also to need to follow a lot of the fedramp standards to have a partnership and a relationship with those federal entities so the implications of fedramp even though it's targeted has broader implications because there's so many businesses that work with government agencies yeah definitely i can see that based on this well defined you know categories and definitions then it makes it from one aspect it makes it a little bit more difficult for application providers and SaaS application providers to really go there and just follow all of those and 
get educated and follow the instructions and get into that and get certified. But from another aspect, it actually helps them because when they really just say we are certified based on this, then they don't need to case by case and customer by customer and contract by contract go and have these kind of you know different discussions. They can just go to that particular standard that is well accepted within that industry, within, within that vertical maybe in some cases as I hear from you, and then you know, just compliant with that. And that's part of the maturity and adding quality to cloud. I think that's part of the journey. Yeah, I would say there there are pros and cons. The pros are, to your point, the maturity, the integrity, the quality is likely to be at a higher level by organizations needing to apply and build off these standards to recognize them and actually take action in incorporating these frameworks and standards into their uh, security posture. It does create a slight barrier to entry. In the emergence of uh, organizations moving to the cloud, there weren't as many restrictions or things that they needed to take into consideration uh, as they do now to do business. Like SOC 2, for example, it wasn't that long ago that SOC 2, it was kind of large enterprises that were taking notice of it, but small to medium businesses weren't as much and they could get away with you know still providing their services to customers i think it's difficult now for even a small to medium enterprise to establish themselves and have a uh, certainly if if they're in business to business without having um, soc2 compliance at, at, at the very least the barriers have raised but with that it's created better quality uh, and better integrity and a higher standard of security so i think you know there's definitely pros and cons sure no peace of mind definitely is a big thing and you cannot see market adoption without peace of mind for buyers so that essentially gives the buyer the peace of mind to see those standards compliances for the vendor and then say okay i can now trust and make sure that the security standards are there. So that's great. From adoption point of view, that's definitely something that helps. Now, changing gears a little bit, as you said, you know, your background has been, you know, in a way that you started as an engineer and then helping, you know, even helping the um, on the sales side and then helping the product management. And you have been product management manager. And then now you're in charge of product strategy some people listening to this are product managers themselves. And how would you say that, for example, from your perspective, you know, uh, you see uh, the role evolving? Do you see uh, someone that excels in product strategy is the same kind of personality, expertise, experience that also excels in product management or you define these two uh, in a kind of, different way and you think that you know it might be two different kind of aspects that somebody might be really good at one and somebody else is good at the other one or for example how do you see the role of uh, the experience you have brought to product management from the business and revenue group to help you to really see the product roadmap and the product development more aligned with the business and without that experience do you think you would be you would have been as impactful as you are today or not 
first, I think the two are very well aligned, product management, product strategy. Uh, you know, having a lot of experience in product management are great qualifications to evolving into product strategy. I think a second point there is my experiences across different realms of the business, whether it be my time as an engineer, my time as a solution architect, my time as a, a, a sales specialist. They have all been really useful in driving the level of impact I can have in a product strategy role. Because in a product strategy role, you are naturally looking more holistically. You're not just looking at an efficient release cycle, picking the best features based upon what you understand of the market and your customers, and then having them manifest in a way that's going to drive business and successful outcomes and satisfaction for uh, the market and customers, right? which is largely the domain of, of, of what a product manager deals in. Obviously, at a very high level, there's lots more to it. Whereas with product strategy, you're thinking about that for sure, but you're also thinking about, you know, you're thinking about the the partnerships that your product would need to build to be successful in the market. Uh, and what do those relationships look like over time? You're thinking about an end-to-end go-to-market strategy and a release model and a pricing structure that fits that release model. You're thinking about different types of product strategies that will allow you to have a reach to maybe different parts of the market. Like, for example, in the development world where you've got lots of engineers and R&D and developers now starting to use more and more security tools, there's a lot more open source. That's driven, for example, product-led growth where they're using essentially freeware that has limited capability but enough to for, for developers and engineers to want to use. And then... Um, there's for kind of additional capabilities, um, you can you can pay more for that. You know, looking at strategies to basically uh, have a higher usage and adoption um, that may cost you money initially as a as a as a company, but you've got broad adoption. But then you can start to monetize capabilities that are going to provide value to that audience. A great maybe analogy to that is Facebook that lost tons of money initially before they figured out how to monetize their platform and then made loads of money, right? Uh, Now, that's very simplistic because they basically brought advertisers in and they didn't necessarily monetize a platform from their customer base. It's a similar play. It's how do I get broad adoption? And from that adoption, there's a lot of intelligence I have on what users need, what they like, and how do I build capabilities on top of that to sell to that user base or sell what I've got in terms of intelligence from that user base to monetize a a third party product. So product in product strategy, you're thinking about a bunch of those aspects as well, that you're a lot more focused on a particular part of the product or a product portfolio when you're a product manager. And, 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 you know, you haven't necessarily got as much time to to look uh, more broadly. When you look at, for example, product strategy, you you look at... uh, what you do on the product on, in that particular company, resilient with regard to making the product, the SaaS applications more secure. Also, as part of that business, you are looking at a landscape that helps you within the cloud environment to grow and just position the company to you know, compete better and operate better and grow better and scale better, the SaaS company. How do you see the kind of, 10 years in the future, 
will shape up with regard to those kind of, especially on the security, on the cloud, on the SaaS applications. Obviously, 10 years ago, SaaS was in a totally different kind of, you know, maybe existence or 20 years ago, it was non-existent. And definitely we will see the change. So it will not be like, you know, that's it. We are kind of in a very stable situation at the moment. The great, everything, it looks fantastic. We are not going to change anything anymore. But uh, we are going to see some changes coming. And if you had to guess, based on the fields and domains that you are involved in, what are the obvious things that you would say, definitely I would see how these things can get better and uh, has to has to get better? And that's something we've been seeing a lot uh, at Resilient is a a significant convergence. So to your point around what's changing, well, security is shifting left. Uh, And what I mean by that is a lot of security tools were focused on services that were running in a production environment and how to protect them. You know, as a customer of Zoom, Zoom's out there as a product, it's in the cloud and it's being offered to customers and you want to protect it from being attacked. And it, it, you know, security is focused less on how people develop Zoom before it even gets, you know, pushed out into a production environment for people like me and you to use it, right? Uh, so, you know, giving Zoom a little bit of a plug, I know, but that's just an example. So, security is shifting left to figure out how we help the people that build an application reduce the attack surface. What's happened as a result of that shift is. Uh, security companies have tried to provide security services for this new audience that is is frankly focused on innovation and speed. And that's been a challenge. It's been a challenge because if you think about the nature of security, it's rigorous and it's painstaking and it's slow. And if you think about the development of modern applications, it's fast, it's automated, it's fluid in its cycles and regularly is changing and dynamic. Um, so th- the two didn't fit together. So there was this pressure to move shift left and then this kind of push back from the people in that space that are working in that space to say, hey, this, this doesn't work for me because I'm used to working in a speedy, automated fashion. So I think a couple of uh, key things that have happened is one we've seen obviously a huge cloud native adoption. So organizations are more and more establishing their services in the cloud and they're building those services and iterating on them very, very quickly, more quickly than ever before. You know, releases of new updates to a product or service are happening um, um, multiple times a day versus where they used to be. You know, security is having to meet this new paradigm and these new people that are developing the application uh, and not just protecting an application in a production environment. So you've got two new things there. One new thing is uh, a new cloud environment that's updated, very dynamic, and you've got these people, these de- developers, people in DevOps, DevSecOps that are used to automation and speed. So the big shift for security in the cloud is to meet those new personas where they're at, right? Give them outcomes in an automated way that doesn't reduce significantly their speed to market and gives them value a point at which they can take action immediately, 
versus because if if they have to wait to take action even a day or a couple of days in their world things have already moved on and they're probably working on a new project at that point so to have to revisit an old project is very painful so you know they want to see outcomes immediately so that they can take action immediately and then move on and i think that's the challenge of security and at resilient that's one of the things we've been focused on we've been developing integrations directly into the software development lifecycle and the tool sets that developers use so that as they're building applications and as they're running automated tests they get value from the validation we do that basically reduces the amount of time that they would need to invest in working on security issues that don't matter and then get their build through in a safe way more quickly and then move on to the next project and that requires you know integration with ecosystem partners like some of the ci tool sets that developers use and other security tool partnerships out there and it requires us to be able to work at the speed of development as well right so that's been a big shift for us as an organization but that's all in the spirit of making sure that we can shift left and work with these new personas that are having to take on a bigger load of security than ever before as they build applications and help them um, do so in a in an automated speedy fashion without compromising security talking a little bit about the way we are the future and the path in front of us we are getting into this augmented kind of intelligence uh, more and more in different fields meaning that you know we are using machine for part of the intelligence we apply to everything and then we of course use and utilize you know the majority of it is still coming from human being just being involved and bring the intelligence to work but getting into that augmented kind of intelligence environment and using more increasingly more machine learning ai to automate to use some of these algorithms that they can learn. If you had to guess, do you think that that will have kind of making the security a smoother, easier? Or do you think that will be on the other side, actually making it more com- more, more, more complex and more challenging? Because you can apply on both sides, you can apply this kind of augmented kind of intelligence or machine intelligence to be more exact, right? So... How do you see that can help us or hurt us in what you do based on what, for example, Resilient does 10 years from now, that it's much more you know, accepted and easier to utilize those kind of technologies? How do you see that can play a role in what we do from security and analyzing what we do as a applications that we generate, the code we generate, looking at everything and coming up on the fly with some changes or alerts, or as you said, the builds are going to be faster and upgrades are going to be faster. And maybe maybe at one point it's so fast that even human being cannot keep up with that speed and pace. And uh, how do you see the role of ML and AI today? How do you see the role is coming in the future? in that particular thing. So we've seen AI and machine learning already insert itself into a lot of what is being done in the cloud and as uh, organizations build their applications. But we've seen it probably more specifically in how 
an existing data set is built up over time and then mined for insights, right? So I've I've got a, I've got a, a lot of information that I've kept. It could be about the environment that I'm using. It could be about my customer base, and I can apply machine learning models or AI to help gain really useful insights and 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 help establish relationships. So machine learning is being used. It's definitely providing some value to serve up insights that we hadn't seen before or at the speed at which we can get that level of information and insight now, which is great. That's been already a, a, a significant evolution. Moving forward, is there, a, is there an opportunity to continue to use machine learning and AI in terms of how we build and ship applications? I think absolutely. The technology may outpace our appetite to want to use it. There's been a lot of technology that has done this over the years. Like when I think about VR goggles, you know, the technology was there before people were ready to use it. And, and, and slowly, surely, people are becoming more and more ready to use it. There's more prevalence in the market. But if you can remember, there was a lot of fanfare around VR and AR headsets and what you can do with them. But, you know, we as people were not ready for that. And I still think there's an element of that to how you automate builds you know people are not necessarily ready to have complete automation without human intervention in these cycles and i think there's a couple of issues there one is that updates for example happen very frequently to the application so they change a lot you know like i said sometimes um, many times a day so because they're changing so much the data that you have to act on an application changes, so you, uh, which 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 impacts, for example, machine learning, which needs a consistent data lake, right? So you can't predict necessarily what change will take place. You can just go off what has happened in the past, uh, and then that informs your model. So machine learning hasn't been that useful as we've seen uh, up to now in helping to kind of automate and remove humans from the build process. But I think it will help to assist more and more. There will be more automation and machine learning and AI will, will help with that in the future. But I don't think we're at the stage where it's providing significant value in that specific process today. But it is elsewhere. Um, it is elsewhere as part of you know cloud compute. Like, for example, if you look at gaming, gaming is a great example where there's sentiment analysis done as people are actively playing a game that will serve up you know, specific insights to a particular gamer at a point in time based upon the measured sentiment of that player. Great, right? You couldn't do that without machine learning and, and, and uh, an element of AI. But that's, that's a very specific use case. I think in the build process, there's still checks and balances that a lot of organizations feel that humans uh, should be reviewing uh, and there should be an audit trail uh, and there should be some eyes on it. Uh, but I think as we move forward, and we figure out how to apply AI to the build process and the release process in a more meaningful way, then yeah, I think you can remove more of the human element and that will allow uh, more speed, uh, potentially less resource having to go into the process. And I think as, as well, that trend of AI and ML, you've got to put that with the emergence of no-code platforms where 
you know, you, fr- frankly, you don't need as much kind of back-end, front-end development to build applications as you used to because no-code platforms, you know, helps people that don't necessarily have a development skill set to spin up applications and, and, and bring the pieces together in a much easier and simplistic manner. And developers are already doing that with open source today, right? They, they're borrowing pieces of code blocks rather than building it all from scratch and they're putting it together. You still need an, a lot of knowledge to do that, but no code platforms are kind of managing that for people without the computer science background. So when you look at that trend, along with ML and AI, I think what you'll get is kind of a more consistent and automated release cycle driven by AI and ML and, and, and moving forward into the future. I, I, I don't think we're at the stage where there's a strong enough appetite to take uh, too many people out of the process yet. I would like to also at the end ask you if you have any book in mind that you would like to introduce, a book that um, has had enough impact in what you do and you would like to share with the audience. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I'd like to plug here, probably. One is the Northwestern uh, College's Product 360 framework as a view of how to look at product holistically. So looking at product strategy and taking a look at all of the things around product strategy, you know, marketing, support, partnerships, as well as R&D and, and, and product So all of that, right, it's a really good framework to bring everything together, a look at product holistically. So there's a framework out there, and I think it was published, well, it was published by Northwestern Kellogg College. So, you know, props to them. That was hugely impactful. And then also Google's design sprint framework for quickly going through a a really kind of interactive sprint process. That's really more for product managers. Um, but it brings R&D, product management together to quickly iterate and go through a design sprint and brings together a, a, a number of key concepts that allow you to think really intently and openly about the problem that you're trying to solve, uh, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, really understanding how to prioritize uh, and and visualize the experience uh, of of customers. So that's Another thing that I'd recommend, so, you know, look at a design sprint on Google Ventures uh, and you should be able to get that framework. And then a book, I'd say, is Working Backwards. It's a book on basically Amazon's um, AWS's practices specifically on uh, how they kind of looked at building out their vision, um, thinking, you know, what their vision was and then kind of working backwards to to build that out. That was interesting to see the vision of of some of those people involved at that time as they built AWS. It's called Working Backwards. It's by Colin Byer and Bill Carr. Um, It's insight stories and secrets inside of Amazon. It was a really good book. It gives a look at not just kind of the build process, but the culture around it. Um, And there's really a lot of great stories in there that will, I think, relate to anyone involved in in building a product and, and certainly relevant as they're a huge cloud organization, any relevant to anyone building services in the cloud or services for the cloud. Super great discussion and recommendations, Curtis. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much, Armin. My pleasure was mine. 
Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.